John, with Biden wrangling over health care, we need some inside the beltway knowledge about what can and can't happen. How about DC expert and CEO of Avalier Health, Dan Mendelson? That Clinton guy? <laughs> Welcome to Care Talk, your weekly home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. David, who do we have today? Well, John, I know you couldn't get your first, second, third, fourth, or fifth choice. Luckily, Dan Mendelson is always there for us. Who is that guy anyway? <laughs> the CEO and founder of Avalier, longtime friend and policy expert, and, and a political an alumnus of the Office of Management and Budget. Dan, Welcome. Great to be here, I think. <laughs> Wait, Office of Management and Budget, isn't that the one where they can't get the person confirmed? Well, maybe we could maybe we could nominate Dan. You know, um, it was before they had Twitter is when Dan was in that office, if I recall. That is true. But they'll have no problem with Shalanda Young. She's awesome. So 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 Dan, as the as the CEO of Avalier and, and a policy expert and a political alumnus, so where are we in terms of healthcare reform and the Biden agenda? What's going on there? Look, this is a group that comes in with a really ambitious uh, set of plans. And uh, it starts, of course, with COVID-19 because nothing can happen until that's under control. And you already see that in a national uh, strategy for immunization and a national strategy for testing. And, you know, while the wheels are still beginning to turn, I think that things are turning around on that. And and uh, that's the first priority. But followed uh, you know, very quickly by coverage, and coverage, of course, is a is a major uh, priority of the of the new administration, and you already see that in the um, in the in the um, Recovery Act. And so, you know, there will be other things that will come behind it, um, focusing on disparities, uh, for example. But it's going to be a very active couple of years, and I think we're all going to be very busy as a result. What can Biden do on, on coverage? I mean, is there's already been a few things like the, you know, opening up the open enrollment again for Obamacare. Are there, are there things like that, or is it more fundamental? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be expansion of, of existing programs. I mean, as long as we have Joe Manchin in the Senate, I think uh, nothing crazy is going to happen. Um, so I don't expect to see a major Medicare expansion. I don't expect to see uh, any kind of uh, public option Passing, I think what we're going to see is uh, a reliance on the Affordable Care Act, on uh, Medicaid, and really publicizing those those two programs. I think that's really where the emphasis is going to be. What's going to happen in Medicaid? I mean, with, with the with the law, if you really believe that there's no Medicare for all and you don't see a public option. What can the federal government do in terms of Medicaid, Medicaid expansion? Well, Medicaid's an interesting one because first uh, they'll roll back a lot of what what happened over the last four years. So for example, these work requirements that are inhibiting um, people from signing up in certain states, I think will get rolled back quite rapidly. And, um, you know, when, when CMS and OMB want to get coverage expansion through waivers, they can often do it. And so I think that it's going to be a lot of waiver activity uh, that is focused on expansion. And then um, you know, if they can get uh, more subsidies out to the states, uh, I think they, they will do that. Then the other thing that I think is really not being discussed a lot is that one of the best ways to expand Medicaid is through ballot initiatives. And ballot initiatives have been very successful. And John, you know, I mean, I think you've, you've done some work on them yourself uh, over the last few years. But these ballot initiatives 
uh, I think really do have potential to force um, the issue because most people in most states um, believe that that care should be should be available for the poor. I mean, it's really uh, that's why they succeed. Dan, we talked, uh, I think, the day after the original Supreme Court decision uh, on Obamacare, and we talked about what was going to happen with Medicaid expansion, which was shown they couldn't make it uh, mandatory. And, and you gave the example of, of CHIP, where actually the incentives were good enough that everybody had uh, eventually gone for it. The incentives were even better here, but we didn't get to 50 states because it became probably so so politicized. Are we, so, we going to get there now? What's going to happen? David, David, do you guys have to go to like, what's a waiver? What's chip? Like, what are you talking about? here? A waiver is John, the, the sign that I give you and I want you to be quiet. <laughs> now, I don't know. Chip, chip. I thought it was, it was a snack. Well, let Dan explain what it is. Children's health uh, insurance program, otherwise known as chip, sometimes called state chip, S chip, uh, but same program. And, you know, David is right that that was one of my responsibilities in the uh, Clinton administration was to, to implement it. But, you know, it was not a slam dunk to get all of the governors to agree to that um, because they had to pay uh, to expand. And I will say that we did a lot of arm twisting during those years. So um, there were a number of occasions where either I or Chris Jennings or somebody else, you know, kind of in the White House during that time would call up a governor and say, you know, congratulations, we're coming to do an event on your state to celebrate uh, the fact that you're you're going to. Uh, put um, this program into place in your state. And the governor's office would say, well, we have no plans to do that. And we're like, well, then you're going to explain that to the press. And we would get on the airplane and go. And, you know, there was a lot of arm twisting during that time, but we did end up, uh, as as you said, David, getting all states to uh, to adopt that program. And we insured 10 million children as a result. I'm very proud of that. It was really a transformational win for poor children. And, and and I think an interesting example of if if you've got the politics right, you can you can actually drive the policy forward. What's is there anything like that that's going to happen in the in the Biden administration? You know, I think one of the reasons, actually, John, why it was really a transformational win is that all of that care is delivered through the private sector. So you know, it is delivered by the same companies that that um, deliver Medicaid. It's Molina and Centene and United and and, um, you know, one of the things that I find so interesting about that expansion and really every expansion that has come since is that it is a public-private partnership. And it was really the first one that was, that was done in that way. And, you know, to me, that, that was really one of the things that was most transformational about it. Um, I think it's too early to know whether we're going to see expansion on that order of magnitude of like 10 million people. Um, I do think that it is well within... Uh, the administration cites um, to expand the Affordable Care Act by two, three million people um, and possibly to expand Medicaid by two, three million people. So I think that that is doable. But, you know, I, I don't think I think we can't underestimate the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic right now and that in a normal time, the administration would have come in and gone hard on coverage right now. That's really not a possibility. They just passed a $1.9 trillion relief act. And yes, it had a little bit of money in it for the Affordable Care Act, but most of that money is going to make sure that the economy gets back on track. So let's talk about another dimension besides coverage, which is about you know what is covered. And we've gone in the pandemic to a work from home model. And so the home has become the center of, of people's lives even more than it was. What about care to the home? I mean, home care, you know, is, we talk a lot about, you know, on the, on this show. 
Um, a lot of advantages to it. And a lot of people who before were saying, you know, well, I'll go to the hospital for something. Now people actually want to be at home. How, how does that translate? Yeah, there's definitely been a shift. And part of it is telemedicine and the fact that Medicare is now covering telemedicine and seniors really like it. They enjoy it. And, you know, there are going to be some times when it's not appropriate or when you don't get the right um, uh, information or, uh, you know, there, it's very important to also make sure that that um, it's being billed properly and that there isn't fraud associated with it. Um, but when you get past that stuff, and it really is, those are technical solutions that need to be adopted. Uh, it's very, very popular. Um, so I do think that that transformation is going to be durable and that we're going to see more and more care shift over to the home. It's going to be dialysis. It's going to be uh, other types of of home care. It's going to be hospital at home. It's going to be all different aspects of it because it's safer uh, and it's generally preferred by the people who can accommodate it. And, and David, you know that at CareCentrics, we've been really transforming care to the home for a lot of MA and Medicaid members and have have had dramatic impacts on how many people, how much time vulnerable patients spend in hospitals and nursing homes. But what's remarkable is we actually did some research with Dan's group, Avalier, and found that when you actually can align resources, work with patients and their families' goals, and really flood the zone with the help that people need, not just clinical, but behavioral, informational, whether it's food or transportation, it can have a transformative impact, not just when we're sort of working with the patients, but long thereafter. So we can take costs out of the system right now. And I mean, Dan, you can speak to the the Avalier research because it was re- really exciting that we were saving more money than we realized. Yeah, this was exciting for us. I mean, sometimes when the results pop out from the page and you see they're, they're much better than you could imagine that they might be. And this was a very careful study um, that was done using Medicare Advantage data uh, and a very wide um, uh, data set that that has a lot of statistical power. Um, and you know, again, what we showed was what you will want to see, which is that care improves by standard benchmarks and it's much less expensive. And I think that that a lot of it has to do with the way, John, that that you and your group are are setting up. Um, the the um, the care pathways and the algorithms uh, that are necessary in order to make sure that you're delivering the right care to the right patient. And look, you know, Medicare Advantage Medicare Advantage plans, Medicare managed care, uh, has every incentive to substitute lower cost care, um, especially at times when when they can show that quality improves. So I think. You know, we're kind of in a, a virtuous cycle by virtue of the fact that there's there's so much interest in uh, Medicare Advantage right now. I mean, it's really it's actually that's one of the other things that I think has really enabled uh, this shift to the home is that you know when when I was running OMB Health in in um, the late 1990s, we had about six percent of Medicare beneficiaries opting into Medicare managed care, and now it's 40, and it's growing by eight percent a year. So it's taking over. And, you know, five years from now, it's going to be more than half of Medicare beneficiaries opting into this kind of care. So there's going to be more and more care shifting to the home as a result. Well, I also think there's this huge opportunity. We would think about it as whole patient diagnostics of, ha- of dealing with all of the non-clinical challenges of, 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 of the, that a lot of vulnerable patients have, whether it's food or transportation or housing. 
and also making sure that we kind of enable the agency of giving giving our patients and their families and their caregivers more control. All of that, I think, plays into how we can actually provide more to the patients that CareCentrics and Medicare Advantage plans serve and actually end up paying less as a society for their care because we're, 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 we're creating opportunities to keep people healthy while leveraging machine learning and big data. But some of it just comes down to really solving the non-clinical challenges that, that like food and hunger, keep people bouncing back into the system. Yeah. And, and this is something where uh, there has been tremendous progress over the last few years. And, and we should definitely give Seema Verma some credit here because she pushed for this kind of diversification uh, in benefits. And so you're right, John, now Medicare Advantage plans can get paid for transportation services, for pest control, uh, and for, for many other, and for you know making modifications to the home. If somebody is um, released from the hospital after having a hip fracture, uh, you, can, you can repair the stairs up to the person's home, uh, and that can be worked into your Medicare Advantage rates. And by the way, that is not, those benefits are not available in fee-for-service. So, you know, there's a little bit of friction there. Dan, when you're talking about the public-private partnership with uh, CHIP, I think now it probably goes a step further because now we're more into the era of data and real-world evidence. And I think that this uh, study that you're talking about, you know, with a private sector player on home care uh, is a way to actually, you know, demonstrate real-world uh, evidence and give, I think, some more confidence to everybody, regardless of political persuasion about, you know, what works and what's a, what's a productive use of the, uh, the federal funds. Yeah, you got you to gotta work from the data. And I think it's really incumbent because there are so many interesting companies offering interesting solutions. Um, but you, if you can't prove that they actually work, um, you know, it's a tough, it's a, uh, it's a tough. Well, that was the exciting thing about using, about leveraging Avalier to really have a benchmark of an index group of identical uh, folks for based, based on uh, demographics and health condition and to look against the impact. But and I think more and more of that's going to have to be done by Avalier and others just to make sure that what health plans are investing in actually does drive results. Dan, I have a slightly different question for you, which is what happens when we run out of money? I mean, the Medicare trust fund is supposed to run out in 24 while we're- John's always a big downer, you know, run out of money, you know, world is going to end, there's going to be pandemic, you know, come on. Well, listen, he's, he, he's balanced budget act of 97 along this. He, this things, can, things can come up short in healthcare- if the Medicare trust fund's going to run out of money in 24, when do we start feeling that pinch from the federal government? You know, it's it's really interesting. Everyone, you know, it's it, this is one of these political things where where when the the politics change and the Republicans are no longer in charge and now it's the Democrats are in charge, all of a sudden uh, the Republicans in Congress care about money, you know? And so this is like one of these things. And I think we have to acknowledge it. Look, when I was at OMB, I was very proud of the fact that we actually had balanced budgets in 98 and 99 and 2000. And that was a that was a really big deal. I think now um, there's a lot less concern about that. And, you know, again, part of it, acknowledge again that we are coming out of the, the, a, a major crisis right now. So this one point nine trillion dollar bill uh, is going to add to our debt. Uh, and and, you know, Essentially, this is a mortgage that we're taking on our kids' future. 
with that said, um, I do think, you know, you're right that that the um, the Medicare trustees are going to come out with a report. It's going to show the depletion of this mythical trust fund that we have. And by the way, there's no like trust fund. This is really a government calculation. All right. Say, say it isn't say it isn't so, Dan. I thought I I saw it. I thought it's in Fort Knox. It's all in gold bullion. No, this is not like the trust fund that you set up uh, you know, for your kids. This is the, you know, this is a this is a calculation. So um yes, there's gonna be con- there's gonna be a lot of discussion about it, but I frankly do not think that it is going to have much of a practical effect. Um in in the in the short term. Now, the one thing that might get expedited by this is some kind of reduction uh, in prices for pharmaceuticals. So I could say that and maybe be a little bit controversial, which is to say that I think that if you think about the Medicare world and you think about COVID, um, no one wants to go after hospitals right now. The hospitals have really been on the front lines, but there has been a lot of discussion about reducing the cost of prescription drugs in Medicare Part B and Medicare Part D. Um, so that is one area where I think the politics might converge. Discussion, but no progress. 80% of America, I mean, the majority of Republicans agree. We, what's what's going to happen there, Dan? How do we reduce drug costs? Well, look, you know, um, what, what I'd say here is that first, the benefits that, that um, Medicare patients have don't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, if you are unfortunate enough to have multiple sclerosis or cancer or any of these other major diagnoses, you are going to face 20 or 30% um, co-pays as a result of that. And frankly, from my perspective, the benefit designs don't make a lot of sense. Um, So that's kind of thing one. And I don't think this problem gets solved until those savings ultimately get passed on to the consumer. But then there's kind of the practical issue of the fact that Medicare is the dominant payer for these drugs, but really has no say in a link between the pricing of that drug and the value of the drug. And that rankles a lot of members of Congress. I was speaking with one uh, member of Congress just last week who was communicating to me about, you know, it makes no sense that there isn't a value test for these new products that are coming into the market. And that's something that I think is likely um, to to, uh, pass at some point over the next couple of years. Well, John, I would say if we want Dan to solve the uh, drug pricing problem, we'll have to bring it up sometime earlier than the last minute of the show. So maybe that's a good time to say we'll invite him back uh, another time. Uh, Dan Mendelson, CEO of Avalier, thank you so much for joining us today. That's it for another edition of Care Talk. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Thank you, Dan. My pleasure. Fun, fun to talk with you guys and see you again. If you liked what you heard or didn't, we'd love a review. Give us some feedback. And please do subscribe.